you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 8. I'm looking at verses 5 through 25 this morning. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Acts chapter 8, looking at <clears throat> verses 5 through 25. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Father, we ask now that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. Give us insight this morning as we study and uh, seek to learn and grow uh, from the text that is before us. We commit this time to you and ask that you would teach and instruct each one of us through the Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts, and we've made it here to chapter 8. And uh, several significant shifts are taking place here in the book. And so I want to lay those out for you so that in the coming weeks, uh, you'll see where we're going. First of all, let's go back to Acts 1.8. This is really the key verse to the entire book of Acts, so it's important to keep this in your mind as we go. Jesus said to his disciples, right as he's ascending to heaven, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the first seven chapters of the book of Acts are centered in Jerusalem. That's what we've been studying so far. The church has been growing and thriving in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, every day, more people are being converted to Christ and joining the number of the disciples. Then last week, we saw the persecution that began in Jerusalem. It had the effect of scattering the Christians into the regions of Judea and Samaria. 
which is exactly what Jesus said back in Acts 1.8. He said, start in Jerusalem, uh, then go out into Judea and Samaria, uh, which is now what's happening here in these chapters of Acts. And then the rest of the book of Acts, we'll see the gospel spreading even beyond Israel's borders into surrounding nations. So Acts 8 is significant for a couple of reasons then. First of all, this is the first example we have of the gospel going beyond the city of Jerusalem. Now we're in Samaria. We're in the region north of Jerusalem. Uh, no Christians are here yet. The church has not been established here yet. And so this is a major shift where the church, the, you know, Christianity is breaking out of Jerusalem and now entering Samaria for the first time. This is Acts 1.8 beginning to be fulfilled. Then there's also the issue of the Samaritans themselves. This is not just a regional shift. This is also a racial or ethnic shift. Uh, the Samaritans are not pure-blood Jews. So far, the church in Acts has been entirely composed of Jewish converts to Christ. Uh, they were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah that their Old Testament scriptures prophesied. And now, here in Acts chapter 8, some people are being saved who are not fully Jewish but are Samaritans, sort of half-Jews. Now, the Jews hated the Samaritans, and I really have to give you a, a brief history lesson here uh, in order for you to understand this. All of what I'm about to tell you is found in the Old Testament. We're not going to go through uh, all of those texts. I'm just going to give you the bullet points here. Feel free to research this on your own. Uh, after the reign of King Solomon, uh, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel split off and formed the northern kingdom. Okay, it's sort of similar to what happened here in America in the period before the Civil War, where some of the states decided, you know, we're going to secede from the Union. Uh, we're not going to be a part of you guys anymore. Uh, sort of like that in, the, in, the, in uh, the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. Now, in America's history, of course, we had a war. We ended up coming back together and reunifying as a country. Uh, but this is not what happened in Israel. In Israel, the split happened and they remained split. And so you had, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel, you had 10 that made up the northern kingdom, and two tribes that made up the southern kingdom. Uh, the northern kingdom often called Israel, the southern kingdom often called Judah. And so there's this split that takes place after the reign of King Solomon. The southern kingdom included the city of Jerusalem where the temple was. Okay, so the northern kingdom didn't have a temple. Uh, so they ended up building one for themselves. You can read about that in the Old Testament. It's also mentioned in John 4, the woman at the well talks about them worshiping at a different place. And so there was this rivalry and schism in Israel between the northern tribes and the southern tribes, and this went on for centuries. Then you get to the captivity. Uh, the northern tribes are conquered by Assyria. Uh, the southern tribes are carried off to Babylon. This is when the book of Daniel takes place. You may be familiar. Uh, Daniel was one of those Jewish boys that was living in Jerusalem. He was, he was basically kidnapped, uh, taken from his homeland, and carried off to Babylon, where he lived the rest of his life. Uh, in that pagan land. The Jews in Babylon retained their Jewish identity, and they came back 70 years later uh, to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. But the Jews in the northern kingdom intermarried with the pagan Assyrians. And this is where we get the Samaritans. Uh, that's why I say they're sort of half-Jews. They're now a mixed race, uh, the descendants of the Jews who intermarried with the pagan Assyrians. And so the Jews from the southern kingdom, of course, looked down on the Samaritans uh, for compromising and tainting their Jewish bloodline. By the time Nehemiah comes back and they rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, uh, all of that, the Jews refused the help of the Samaritans. They didn't consider them to be a part of the Jewish people anymore. And so they were uh, outcast 
uh, these half-Jews, they settled up in Samaria, north of Jerusalem. And for the hundreds of years that followed, uh, the Jews had no dealings with the, Samarita the Samaritans. There was no reconciliation. They were separate people. Uh, in fact, when Jews from Galilee would travel down to Jerusalem for the Jewish feast days and the holidays and things, they would go around Samaria, way out of the way, because they didn't want to walk through their land and basically you know, desecrate their feet uh, from walking through the country of Samaria. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans. They despised them. But here we are in Acts chapter 8. We see the first converts to Christianity among the Samaritans. Uh, the kingdom of Jesus isn't just open to pure Jewish people. It's now including some of these half-Jews as well. And this was a hard pill to swallow uh, for the early church. Again, so far, these, are all, these have all been Jews in Jerusalem who have been saved. And so hearing that some of these Samaritans were being converted caused some ruckus. Now, in a few chapters, God is really going to blow the minds of the apostles because some Gentiles uh, will be saved as well. People like you and I who aren't Jewish at all. And uh, that will cause even more of a ruckus. Uh, there's going to be a whole big meeting about it in Acts 15 about, you know, what, what do we do about this? Uh, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. Now, this was always the plan. Even back in the book of Genesis, when God chose Abraham, he said that eventually all the families of the earth would be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. And so the covenant that God established with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then all of Jacob's descendants, that's the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, that covenant was never supposed to be just with them. Uh, it was never supposed to be just God and the Jewish people. It was always the plan and purpose of God to bring salvation through the Jewish people to all nations of the world. But the early church had a hard time with this concept. They held their Jewish identity uh, very highly. Uh, they, you know, they were the chosen people of God, and they didn't want to let go of that. And so it took them a while to eventually understand and accept that the kingdom of God would include people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And so with all that as a background, let's dive into the text. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So Philip comes to Samaria, he preaches the gospel to this city, he performs these miraculous signs that were God's way of attesting to the authenticity of Philip's message, and many of these Samaritans were persuaded, and they believed the gospel. Uh, one quick note before we move on to the rest of the text. It seems to me uh, that the miracles and signs and wonders had previously only been done by the apostles. Okay, so just the 12 apostles had the ability to work these miracles and signs in the first five chapters of the book of Acts. I want to show this to you so you're not just taking my word for it. Acts 2, verse 43, uh, awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And then Acts 4, 33, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And then verse 12 of chapter 5, Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So in the first five chapters of the book of Acts, all of the miracles and the signs casting out of demons, healing the sick, things like that, they were all being done by these 12 apostles who had been specifically appointed by uh, Jesus uh, to serve basically as the leaders of the early church. 
Then in Acts chapter 6, seven men were chosen to serve as deacons in the church. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 5 says, the saying pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, uh, Philip, Prochorus, Nacornire, uh, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And it seems to me at this point, uh, when the apostles laid their hands on these seven men in the presence of the whole church, appointing them uh, to this role in the church, it seems that these seven men were given that same power that the apostles had to perform miracles. I think it was sort of conferred to them uh, by the apostles when they laid their hands on them publicly uh, here in Acts chapter 6. And I say that because uh, you know, five of those seven men we never hear about again in the New Testament. We only hear about two of them, Stephen, and then here in Acts 8, Philip. And in both cases, now they are performing miracles as well. Never, not once prior to Acts chapter 6, does anyone perform a miracle except the apostles. It was always done through those 12 men. They were the ones doing these signs and wonders. But after laying on the, uh, of the apostles' hands, appointing these seven men, all of a sudden, verse 8 says, Stephen was full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then here in Acts 8, Philip, the second on the list of there of seven, is also seen performing miracles. So I think that all these seven men probably had the same miracle-working power given to them in Acts chapter 6 when the apostles laid hands on them and appointed them as deacons in the church. I admit that it's just my theory. I can't prove that definitively, but I think it's uh, interesting that the only people in the book of Acts outside of the apostles who are said to have miracle-working power are those that the apostles laid their hands on in Acts 6. Okay, uh, this brings us now to Simon the Magician. So Philip is in Samaria. He's preaching the gospel. God is attesting to his message with these signs and miracles. And verse 9 says, There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Uh, so he's promoting himself as this great magician and uh, wooing the crowds in Samaria. Verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Now, I got to be honest, magic tricks do not impress me. Uh, some of you know that I grew up with a clown for a mom, and I mean that quite literally. Uh, whenever I tell people that, they either don't believe me or there's a lot of follow-up questions like, what do you mean a clown? Uh, I'll just clear that up. This is my mom. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> growing up as I did, we attended all sorts of uh, conferences where clowns and magicians and the like would gather for a week and basically they'd learn from each other how to do certain things, uh, twisting balloons, juggling magic tricks, things like that. So if you ever wonder what's wrong with me, keep in mind, this is how I was raised. Uh, now, you have no idea the emotional trauma of a child being in a hotel building with 200 clowns, all trying to you know, pull things out of your ear and squirt you with water and, and things like that. Uh, anyways, so magic tricks don't impress me because I know how they're all done. Uh, I've done most of them myself. I'm the guy sitting there during the magic show uh, who's telling everybody around me how they're doing each trick. Okay, uh, there's a trap door under the stage there. He's got a thumb tip. He just distracted you and put the coin in his left pocket. You know, that's me. Uh, now, there was one time when I was truly impressed by a magician. <clears throat> and to this day, I still remember his name. It was Norm Barnhart, a magician. I don't remember where he was even from, but we were at one of these week-long conferences, 
And uh, he did a few shows during that time. He taught some classes. And most of his magic tricks were the same old thing. There were mirrors. There were sleight of hand. It was uh, all the stuff that I had seen a million times. But then at one point in the show, he made a scarf disappear, a little, you know, colorful scarf. And it's not like he put it in his hand and then he opened his hand and it was gone. So maybe he had time to palm it or put it in his pocket or something. Uh, literally, the scarf was standing there, it was, you know, in the air right in front of him and then it was gone. It just vanished into thin air. One second it was there, fully visible. The next second it was gone. And I thought to myself, this guy is legit. Uh, I don't know if he's demon-possessed or what, but that is not possible. Uh, I was absolutely amazed. And so as soon as the show was done, I marched right up to him and said, how did you do that thing with the scarf? And he showed me. And to this day, it's probably the most clever, ingenious, ridiculous idea that I've ever heard of. Uh, behind the stage was a shop vac. Uh, and the hose of this, don't get ahead of me, uh, uh, the hose of the shop vac was running through the back of the stage. He had cut a hole in his suit coat, uh, and it was running straight through the sleeve right here uh, at, the end of his, at the end of his arm sleeve. So that when he threw the scarf up into the air in front of him, his assistant backstage would turn the shop back on. There was music playing. You couldn't hear it. And the scarf was sucked into the hose so quickly that it looked like it just vanished into thin air. It was the most brilliant magic trick I think I've ever seen. Even I, the most skeptical person in the audience, was amazed. Now, Simon in our text was a magician. Maybe all the things he did were tricks like that, gimmicks that were just really convincing to the people. Uh, maybe <clears throat> there was some sort of uh, demonic influence here, enabling Simon to actually do things that were uh, supernatural and would astound the people here in Samaria. But either way, uh, he was good. Uh, he was very good at what he did. Verse 9 says this man named Simon had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. And then verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip, as he was preaching good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. A couple of things to point out here in verse 12. First of all, notice Philip was preaching good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> uh, this was the theme of his preaching. As we've said before, the kingdom of God refers to the realm over which Jesus rules, and it includes all who submit themselves to Christ. He is reigning right now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, and we are commanded to submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ. And when we do, we get baptized to symbolize our faith and our commitment to Christ, and then we become a part of the kingdom. The kingdom will continue to gradually spread and increase until all of the world one day is in submission to Christ. And then he will return, he'll take his seat on the throne in Jerusalem, and all those living and dead will be brought before him. The dead will be raised back to life. All of us will stand before Christ on that day of judgment. Those who were a part of the kingdom of Christ in their lives will be allowed to enter the eternal kingdom on earth. We'll have immortal bodies never to die again. Uh, will live forever with Christ, ruling over the world, now freed from the curse of sin. Those who refuse to submit to Christ as Lord in this life, on that judgment day, will be condemned to face God's judgment forever in hell. And so this was the message that Philip was preaching 
to these Samaritans, uh, Samaritans. Submit to the Lordship of Jesus. He has died. He's risen again from the dead. He's the long-awaited Messiah. And he offers <clears throat> salvation and access to the kingdom to anyone who will believe the gospel and repent of their sins. And verse 12 says that they believed and were baptized. Many people here in the city uh, were converted to Christ as a result of Philip's preaching the kingdom of God. Then verse 13 says something surprising. Even Simon himself believed. Simon, the magician who had impressed these people for a long time with his magic, he believed the preaching of Philip, and he was baptized. It says, after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. He was amazed at the signs and miracles that Philip was doing. Now, Simon knew all of the tricks. He was a magician. This was his business. But when he saw the stuff that Philip was doing, he recognized that this was different, and he was truly amazed. Now, I was being a bit tongue-in-cheek earlier when I talked about uh, the magic trick that impressed me. I knew there had to be some explanation. I just couldn't figure it out. Uh, but in this case, Simon wasn't just unable to figure out how Philip was pulling these tricks off. He was convinced that this wasn't a trick at all. He was amazed at the signs and miracles that Philip performed, and he believed. Verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So word gets back to the apostles in Jerusalem that there are some Samaritans being saved and baptized uh, in, in the country of Samaria here by Philip. And they aren't exactly sure what to think of this. And so they send a delegation. Peter and John are sent to investigate. By the way, in Acts chapter 11, uh, the exact same thing happens when the first Gentiles are saved. Uh, the first non-Jews. And so the apostles, the whole church, they hear that Peter has baptized uh, some Gentile converts, <clears throat> uh, somebody who's not Jewish at all, and they're not really cool with that. And so Peter ends up having to explain uh, to the whole church why he did this and that the kingdom of God isn't just for Jews. That God has shown him that the Jews, the Samaritans, even completely non-Jewish people uh, can all be saved. Uh, this was a major sticking point in the early church. And so Peter and John come down to Samaria to investigate. Verse 15 says uh, that they came down and prayed for them, these Samaritan converts, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now this leads to some questions. Uh, when do Christians receive the Holy Spirit? Some people would say at the moment of conversion, as soon as God uh, awakens our hearts to believe the gospel and repent of our sins, we are immediately given the Spirit of God. Others say, no, it probably happens at baptism. Uh, and still others would say, because of this text, that it happens sometime later. Pentecostals believe that one can be saved and not have the Holy Spirit right away, that we have to sort of pray and seek for the baptism of the Spirit to come later. Now, I think that's all completely wrong, and I'll tell you why. First of all, let me answer my own question. Uh, I believe the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit comes on each one of us the moment we are saved. I think the delay of the Spirit's coming on these new converts in Samaria was an exception, and I'll explain in a minute why God did this. But normally, the Spirit is given as soon as we repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus for salvation. Uh, back in Acts chapter 2, Peter had said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, 
Uh, you know, the Spirit might come on you a few weeks or months later. Uh, you know, hope that it happens eventually. No, Peter says, repent, be baptized, and you will receive the Spirit today. And that day, 3,000 people were saved, 3,000 people were baptized, and if Peter is telling the truth here, 3,000 people were given the Holy Spirit. Another good proof of this, the Spirit coming at the moment of conversion, is Acts chapter 10. Uh, this is what I've been referring to a little bit here, the conversion of the first Gentiles. Uh, Cornelius has his family and friends with him, the very first non-Jews to be saved. Uh, they aren't even you know, part Jew like the Samaritans. These are Gentiles like you and I. And so Peter is preaching to them, and in verse 43 he says of Jesus, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, so right in the middle of his preaching the gospel to them, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. They're not even baptized yet, and they received the Spirit. The believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. As I said, uh, this was really a shock to the early church. Uh, they, you know, but they, they, they saw and recognized they had received the same Spirit because, verse 46, they were hearing them, these Gentile converts, speaking in tongues and extolling God. And so just like the Jewish Christians back in Acts chapter 2 uh, spoke in tongues when the Holy Spirit came on them, uh, here we are in Acts 10, and the Gentiles are also speaking in tongues, which means they've received the same Holy Spirit just like the rest. And so Peter says in verse 47, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit comes on people the moment that they believe the gospel and repent of their sins. Uh, when God is working in our hearts and we are converted to Jesus, right then we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So the question then comes, what's going on in Acts chapter 8? Why the delay? Uh, these Samaritans believed the gospel, they were baptized, but they hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. And I think the answer is that God did this on purpose so that they would not receive the Spirit until Peter and John were present to see it. Look back at verse 14. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any one of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit was given to these Samaritan converts in the presence of the apostles, in particular Peter. I think that's significant that he was there. Uh, he was the leader of the early church. God did the sign for them, uh, the leadership of Christianity, to make sure that they would understand that the same Spirit was given to these Samaritans. Uh, Peter, you may remember back in Acts, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Matthew 16 was given the keys to the kingdom. Uh, Jesus said, I'm going to, you know, you're going to be the rock that I build the church on, and whatever you, you bind and loose will be bound and loose in heaven. And so Jesus said that Peter was going to play a very important role in the early church. So I think he made sure that Peter was, was here in Samaria to see the Spirit given to these half-Jews. And by the way, same thing in Acts 10 when the first Gentiles are saved. Peter is there again to see it. So Peter is, in a sense, using those keys of the kingdom to unlock the door and to make clear to the whole church that their unity in Christ, that anyone, a Jew, Samaritan, or Gentile, who believes the gospel and repents of their sins can be saved. So all that to say, I don't think Acts chapter 8 is the norm. I think it's the exception. 
Uh, Luke even seems to suggest that this was unusual by pointing out that they hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. This wasn't normal. Uh, God delayed the Spirit's coming on these first Samaritan converts until the apostles were there to witness it. And I assume the same manifestation uh, of the filling of the Spirit was probably speaking in tongues. It doesn't say that explicitly, but somehow they knew that they had received the Spirit. My guess would be uh, that the Samaritans here spoke in tongues, just like in Acts 2 when the Jews were given the Spirit, and in Acts 10 when the first Gentiles are given the Spirit. So I think the same thing is happening here with the first Samaritans. The Spirit is poured out on them. They speak in tongues, just like the day of Pentecost. And so the apostles recognize that they have been filled with the same Holy Spirit as the Jews. The purpose of the, of the delay ultimately was to show Peter and John that the same salvation and the same Holy Spirit that was given to these Jewish disciples of Jesus in Acts 2 is now the shared experience of these uh, Samaritan converts as well. And again, in Acts chapter 10, the same thing happens with the first Gentile converts. You may remember how the Spirit came on Peter as he was, <clears throat> I'm sorry, comes on, on, on the, uh, the Gentiles as they're listening to Peter preaching. Uh, they begin to speak in tongues, and Peter, and, and uh, basically in Acts 11, he's recounting what had taken place. Verse 15, he says, As I began to speak, as he's preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so Peter says to the church, if then God gave the same gift to them, to these Gentiles, these non-Jews, as he's given to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Again, this was kind of a shocking, eye-opening moment for them as they realized that the kingdom of Jesus was going to include everyone, not just the Jews. But they saw the speaking in tongues, which was the sign of uh, the filling of the Spirit, and so they said it must be that God has granted to these Gentiles repentance that leads to life. A lot of people get very confused about the purpose of speaking in tongues in the book of Acts. It's really quite simple. Uh, tongues was a verifiable sign that one had received the Holy Spirit. These were real languages, not gibberish. And so the, the, you know, they recognized that they were given this ability to speak unknown languages to them supernaturally. And this sign helped the Jewish Christians come to the understanding that we are all one in Christ. Uh, there is no more distinction between Jew and Gentile. If God has given the same Holy Spirit to all of us, Peter says, who is I to stand in God's way? They're just as much a part of the church as we are. In Acts 15, Peter says, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, between Jews and Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So Jesus is the Savior to the Jewish people, but he's also the Savior to people from every tribe and tongue on earth. Now test this, see if it makes sense, if it lines up with what you see in Scripture, but I think this is the best explanation uh, for why the Holy Spirit didn't come to these Samaritan converts in Acts 8 until the apostles, and particularly Peter, was present to see it. So that all of them would recognize that the church of Jesus Christ isn't just Jewish. The kingdom is opening up 
to include converts from other people groups. So in our text, this is not the normal case that we should uh, expect. In fact, it seems to have caught them by surprise. Uh, notice that the verse says the Spirit had not yet fallen on them as if that was unexpected. That was an unusual thing. You know, they've been saved and been baptized. Why haven't they been given the Spirit? Rather than this being some sort of pattern of a later baptism of the Spirit sometime, you know, after your conversion experience, this text seems to be an exception to the rule of the immediate filling of the Spirit at conversion, which is why it's pointed out here by Luke. I think God deliberately held back the Spirit from these Samaritan converts until Peter and John were there, so they would see and be able to report back to the rest of the apostles. The goal being for these Jewish Christians to realize that Christ's church was going to be a lot bigger and more inclusive uh, than the Old Covenant, spanning across all nations and including all people groups, all of us forming one church. Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one in Christ. There is one body of Christ because there is one gospel that we all believe, there is one Lord that we all serve, and there is one Holy Spirit that indwells each one of us. And so when you meet a brother in Christ living next door or around the globe, uh, we are all united in the family of God. The gospel of Jesus here in Acts 8 brought together these groups that had been at odds for literally hundreds of years. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Again, they walked around their country when they had to go across it instead of going uh, through Samaria. They refused to have any dealings with the Samaritans. But because of the gospel and the kingdom of God, including both Jews and Gentiles, uh, faith in Jesus was bringing together and reconciling these two groups that had been at odds for so long. As one Bible commentator writes, uh, the Spirit was withheld until the apostles could verify the gospel work. In this unique case of the gospel's first moving beyond Jerusalem, the Lord sovereignly waited to give any manifestation of the Spirit until the apostles could be there to witness it. That way they would see and could testify that the Samaritans received the same Holy Spirit given to the Christians in Jerusalem. In this way, there could be no question that the gospel was for the nations, and that the Jews and Samaritans, once bitter enemies, were now brothers and sisters and members of the same household of God because of their shared faith. Now we have to finish up uh, with Simon because there is a twist uh, to the story. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Simon wasn't saved. Simon was headed for hell. Peter says there, quite literally, you know, your money, your money perish with you, to hell with you and your money, Simon. But wait a minute. Uh, didn't verse 13 say that Simon believed? Wasn't he even baptized? Uh, yes, but according to Peter, he wasn't a Christian. I think Simon's belief was sincere as far as it went, but it was superficial. It wasn't saving faith. Maybe you've heard the story of a fellow named Blondin who used to tightrope across 
uh, Niagara Falls, which seems ridiculous to me, uh, but apparently, according to Google anyways, 11 people have done this. I don't know what would possess them, but they apparently this is a thing you do. Uh, you run a tightrope across Niagara Falls and walk across it. But the story goes that there's this guy named Blondin <clears throat> who used to do this all the time. He would tightrope across one side of Niagara Falls to the other side, and the crowds of people would come out and watch him do it. And so he said to the crowd, do you think I could go across this tightrope with a wheelbarrow? And they all said, oh, yes, I, I bet you can do that. And so he went across with a wheelbarrow, and then he came back, and he said, you think I can go across with this wheelbarrow filled up with sand? And the crowd said, yes, yes, you can do it, full of sand. And so the guy goes across with the wheelbarrow full of sand, and he comes back. Then he says to them, do you think I could do it with somebody in the wheelbarrow? And the crowd said, oh, yes, we're sure of it. You can do it with someone in the wheelbarrow. And then he's pointed to somebody in the crowd, and he said, get in the wheelbarrow. And of course, he wouldn't do it. Nobody in the crowd was actually willing to get in the wheelbarrow. Simon believed the preaching of Philip, but he wasn't willing to get in. He believed that the parachute could support him, but he wasn't willing to actually jump out of the plane and trust it. He had superficial faith in Jesus. Simon probably believed that Jesus had died and risen again, but so does Satan. He believes that too. That's not enough to save anyone. Simon hadn't, repent, hadn't repented. He had believed the gospel. He had believed the facts that, that Philip was preaching, but he hadn't submitted to Christ as Lord. And so Peter says to him, you're not a part of the kingdom, Simon. You're headed for judgment. And then verse 22, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said many times that there would be false converts among the true. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 7 that a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says there that some people claim to be Christians. They call Jesus Lord, and yet they are false converts. People like Simon. They claim to believe the gospel. They might even get baptized. They might join a church, but they haven't repented. They haven't submitted to Christ. Jesus warned about this again in the parable of the soils. I'm not going to look at this right now, but you'll probably remember some, he said, would appear to be saved but it would be revealed later that they were not. And sometimes you just can't tell, especially at first. Uh, as I look around here, there are, I think, four of you here in this room that I baptized in the last couple of years. And with each one of you, I sat down with you and I went over the gospel and I went over baptism to make sure as best as I can uh, that you understood the gospel and that you uh, were trusting in Christ and had repented of your sins. But at the end of the day, I can't know the condition of anyone's heart and you can't know mine. Simon looked great, but he was a fraud. Matthew 13, Jesus taught this parable. He said, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. The servant of the master of the house came and said, Master, did, not, uh, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? 
He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Weeds and wheat plants look very similar. You can't always tell them apart. And so he says in verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house. The disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. They didn't quite get Jesus' parables, which kind of gives me comfort sometimes because I don't always get Jesus' parables. But he explains this one, verse 37. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who, he who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus says, as the gospel goes out into the world, there will be weeds and good seed. There will be true converts to Jesus, the wheat plants, and there will be false converts that appear to be saved at first like the weeds. In a church, especially as a church grows, it's very likely to have some genuine Christians and some unconverted people all together in the same church, all mixed together. And Jesus says to us, you won't always be able to figure out who is who. Uh, we're careful about who we baptize, as I said, who we offer the Lord's Supper to, uh, who we allow into the membership of our church. But even with all of that, ultimately, we cannot always know the condition of someone's heart. With Simon, it became very evident to Peter that he wasn't converted. Uh, Simon didn't become a disciple of Jesus in order to serve him. Uh, he didn't come in order to have his sins forgiven and his life transformed. He came to increase his own interests to make more money, to have more influence among the people. He saw the miracles that Philip was doing, and he wanted to be able to do that. Jesus says on Judgment Day when he returns, the wheat will be separated from the weeds. So how do you tell a true Christian from a false one? Uh, there's certain, certainly some things in Scripture that give us some clues to that. Uh, true Christians obviously believe the gospel. They obey Christ. They love others. They grow spiritually. They display the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. True Christians continue in their faith. They don't fall away from Christ. These are all marks of genuine conversion that are given to us in the New Testament. All of these are to help uh, each one of us individually examine our own hearts to know if we've been converted. But for others, we can't always know. If you've ever been around uh, toddlers, maybe you've had the experience before of trying to point to something across the room to get them to look at it, and instead of looking at where you're pointing, they look at your finger. Uh, that's sort of what Simon is doing here. The miracles, the signs that Philip was performing was intended to direct people to Jesus, to the truth of the gospel. But Simon missed it. He was looking at the finger instead of what the finger was pointing to. He was so fixated on the miracles the power that Philip displayed that he didn't get the gospel that Philip was preaching about the kingdom of God. He just wanted the ability to perform those miracles. 
He wasn't willing to actually submit his life to the lordship of Christ. After Peter calls Simon to repent, verse 24 says that Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And that's the last that we hear of Simon. We can't say for sure uh, if he ever did repent and was genuinely converted or not. But here he serves as a reminder to all of us that not all who claim to be Christians truly are. It's very possible uh, to look the part in the eyes of others and even, even the eyes of people in the same church while still being unconverted. Let's uh, wrap up here with verse 25. It says, When they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, this would be Peter and John, uh, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And so as they're going back to Jerusalem after seeing the Holy Spirit fall on the Samaritans and they've you know, kind of had this eye-opening experience, oh wow, I guess you know the, the gospel isn't just for us Jews, it's for Samaritans too. Uh, they head back to Jerusalem and as they go, they're preaching the gospel all along the way. Samaria is being reached with the gospel. This is Acts 1-8 being fulfilled. Jews and Samaritans, these groups that had been enemies for centuries, are now being brought back together in Jesus. Sort of reminds me of some friends I had in Bible college. Uh, one was from Burma and the other from Thailand. And those two countries have been at war for years. Uh, these guys literally grew up basically fighting against each other, their families, you know, killing each other. And yet these two guys in, in Bible college, the Thai guy and the Burmese guy, they became friends because despite their backgrounds and all the history of their countries and the rivalries and wars that had been going on, they had both come to faith in Jesus and they were one in Christ. It's a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God and what one day will be the reality across all of the world. Uh, two more texts as we conclude. This is the revelation uh, given to John of the future that we have to look forward to. Revelation 5 says they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, speaking of Jesus, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then Revelation 7, 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne. And before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Don't miss there the significance of that little word, our. People from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, and they say, Salvation belongs to our God. All of us together, worshiping and serving the same Lord, People from every tribe and tongue worshiping and serving Christ, dwelling in unity, a peace across the world. This is our hope. A renewed creation, free from the curse of the fall, with people from all, all walks of life and all nations of the world, unified in our love and devotion to Christ.